for March 21st, 2022. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 716, Big Panda Energy. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The Overthinkers are your smart, funny friends from the internet. We're we're like uh we're like your your old time crew, your your friends from childhood. We're with you, uh, whether things are good or bad, whether you're we're your your best self or you are a uh, you are a ravenous beast, just just cuddling and being cute and being being you know uh, being furry all over the place. No, that's uh, uh, that that that'll become clear when I explain that we are talking about uh, Pixar's latest film, Turning Red, uh, which is a coming of age story set in Toronto, uh, where in a uh, spoiler alert. Uh, I mean, I guess this is in the trailer, right? Like, so uh, this is not exactly spoilers. Uh, whereas uh, as she comes of age, as she hits puberty, a, a young girl growing up in Toronto discovers that she turns into a giant red panda uh, whenever she feels any particularly strong emotion. Luckily for her, puberty is not a time of strong emotions. Uh, and so there's no drama in the movie and nothing ever happened. No, that's, that's, uh, that's not what happens. Uh, I am I am your uh, Red Panda host, Matt Rather. Uh, you can call me Red Leader, <laughs> and I'm here. I'm here with uh, my good friends Matthew Belinky. Hello, Matt. How are you? I'm your Ford Townie forever. Ah, love that. And uh, and Pete Fenzel. Hey, Pete. Uh, hey, let's play some mahjong. What? I'm not sure. <laughs> Matt, you you keep coming around like this. We're gonna we're gonna think you're on the podcast permanently now, and we're gonna get used to it. You know, it's great to it's great to have you here in our in our crew in our crew of of uh, four town stands. I suppose that the more what you podcast about intersects on the Venn diagram with the things that my kids want to watch, the more likely I'll pop, pop, I'll pop around. It's a good point. All right. So uh, what we, we know we have to do is make it a uh, make it an entirely children's entertainment uh, type of series. That's like Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood anthology. Right. Uh, we'll go, we'll go one by one through the, through every episode because uh, we are, we are nothing if not completists. Well, we want to begin, uh, this episode in the obvious place. I'm sure it's what you're thinking, uh, as well as you listen to this. We want to begin by talking about Michael J. Fox and, uh, a little, Fox, uh, get it, get it. <laughs> Mike, yeah, Michael Michael J. Fox turned into a fox when uh, when he was a teenager. No, uh, he turned into a wolf when he was in a film called Teen Wolf. Uh, I'm not sure the Mats have seen it. Pete, can you tell us a little something about the 1985 classic Teen Wolf? Sure, and I think Teen Wolf is a important text for turning red, especially if you're coming from it from the perspective of a dude, right, who is not personally experienced a lot of the events that are described in the movie, but also beyond the notion of it being, you know, transposed from one gender experience to a different gender experience, rather there being a notion of difference in Turning Red, where it is on one level about the experience that is familiar to its audience, but is also in dialogue with a lot of other interpretations of similar sorts of teenage experiences. And Teen Wolf is the most direct because the plot is almost exactly the same. Well, it's not exactly the same. That's not true. There's no boy band. But but it's about a teenager, right, 
who is, except it's a dude, right? And so it's going to be very different. I think we can talk about how it's very different. Um, who finds out that he is turning into a werewolf and when he's at school. And when he's stressed out, right? He gets stressed out and he turns into a werewolf. And he so wait, it, it doesn't have to do with the moon in this version? Um, I, I, you know what? It's been a while since I've seen it. But I don't <laughs> – for the most part, Teen Wolf doesn't – he doesn't transform into a wolf exclusively at night. I will say that much. But there is a moon on the poster, right? So okay. there's – for all of this stuff, there's something of an incredible Hulk dimension where it's associated with the id coming out to play. And so he turns into Teen Wolf and he's very sort of scared and ashamed and he tries to hide himself and he thinks of himself as a monster. Um, it actually first happens while he's making out uh, in a closet with somebody. Um, and so there's sort of a sexual dimension to it. Obviously, hairiness is a concern in the movies that we're talking about. Uh, but eventually he figures out that when he is uh, a wolf, he is very good at basketball. Teen Wolf is a basketball movie. And uh, it is, as far as I understand, one of the few basketball movies to end with free throws. But um, but it uh, it is about how, oh, he's so good at basketball because he's so strong and he's so fast when he's a werewolf that he becomes super popular on campus and eventually discovers that being a werewolf is something that's been running in his family for a long time, that, you know, his parents are werewolves and uh, that they should have told him about it at some point, but they didn't. Right. And so then there's uh, there's various teen dramas of the teens not getting along with each other. Um, but at, at the end of the day, it ends with him kind of coming to terms with his new self and thinking his new self is really cool. Um, you might notice that the big difference between Teen Wolf and Turning Red is also a big difference between uh, boys becoming men and men becoming wolves. I mean, boys becoming men <laughs> and, and girls becoming women. It's a deep cut right there from Dirty yes. Rock. <laughs> I mean, this is a show about werewolf bar mitzvahs, right? This is, although it's, <laughs> actually it's about werewolf bot mitzvahs, right? That's what, uh, that's what Turning Red is. is it's the, it's yeah, the it, it ends with that, like a quasi-religious ceremony. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. But But I would say that the big difference that speaks to the littler differences between Teen Wolf and Turning Red and between lots of sort of Hulk-style stories like this, superhero-style stories like this, is like when a dude becomes hairy because he's growing up and he starts getting these, like, new abilities and he starts maturing in new ways, you know, he, he generally, like, has to learn to like himself because he's going to be hairy, right? And I hate to sort of be this direct, but I really do think that this is kind of the level on which the movie is operating. When women get hairy they get rid of the hair a lot of the time. Like they have to live a lot of their adult lives in this sort of constant state of suppressing their secondary sexual characteristics that come to them when they're, when they have puberty, right? Like lots of, lots of hair removal, lots of sort of grooming and makeup to hide the changing in their skin. Right. Like, and, and a lot of, a lot of sort of, at least from my perspective, maybe, maybe someone would like to correct me, but I do think a lot of, uh, the beauty standards, at least that we see in the Western world, and I think you can see touches of it in Eastern world and other worlds, is uh, is about making women look like they're younger than they are. Maybe even, you know, making them look like adolescents or like children and infantilizing them, right? Like, And so it felt to me that, of course, in the Teen Wolf about women, the women have to figure out a way to not be hairy. And they do this by consulting with a long tradition of other women who, like, over time, 
in a society that is ultimately patriarchal, right? Because the wizard who does it is a dude for some reason, like the moil for their bar mitzvahs. The moil doesn't go to bar mitzvah. I mean, yeah, you can go to a bar mitzvah. But, I'm uh, a lowly wear goyle. Oh, by the way, I apologize for being hoarse today. My voice is absolutely shot. It's because I am turning into an ocelot yeah, you're going- <laughs> as I speak. <laughs> but yes, Pete is finally but- going through puberty. Yeah, but if you were to compare, when I think of Teen Wolf as a sort of quintessential 80s male puberty movie, when I think of the quintessential 80s female puberty movie, I think of Labyrinth, which is also a movie about menstruation. But the the menstruation is presented as an external experience, right? Like, which I think speaks to the notion that, you know, puberty is something that women have to, like, survive, as as in like you sort of get through the experience of disorientation and then you come out on the other side and we all kind of pretend it never happened right which is uh um really offensive except insofar as much as you may or may not have a baby um which is also kind of offensive but but that's yeah. that's i think for me that's where i start with turning red is that it's a story about getting hairy um as a as a teenage girl and how in regards to Teen Wolf, she gets a lot of the same characteristics. You know, she's strong, she's fast, she's popular, she's able to express herself in new ways. Um, there's stuff that comes with this transformation, but unlike Teen Wolf, at the end of the day, like her parents weren't always waiting for her to turn into a werewolf because they thought it would be great, right? They were waiting for her to turn into a werewolf so they could put the panda bear back in the amulet. Right. So that they could head it off at the pass and prepare her to hide it from the world for the rest of her life. Um, and then, of course, you can get into the mom and all this. But no, that's my initial take. I know you guys aren't big Teen Wolf fans. I'm sure you probably haven't watched Teen Wolf 2 with Jason Bateman, where it's just a, a bad boxing movie. Uh, I don't recommend it. And I do hear that the uh, the TV show Teen Wolf is 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 uh, dreamy. It has dream boats in it. I have not watched it. But uh, but that's where I, that's where I start. I mean, there's a lot to start from in Turning Red, but that's where I start, where this is a sort of post-classical feminist interrogation of semi-supernatural coming-of-age stories, which mostly involve dudes becoming monsters as a metaphor for gaining body hair or like the body hair becomes a symbol for puberty and sort of being like, well, what about women? They also get body hair and they get periods, right? And like those things also coincide with like social and psychological development and individuation and also with like becoming awesomer. Right. And it's not being a child anymore. So so that that's where I start. I mean, does that resonate with you guys at all? Or did you see this coming from a different angle? Huh. I just want to this is the, the the most frivolous thing I could have could have latched onto in your your whole uh, introductory springboard. But I just want to point out this is the second time that Pixar has ripped off a Michael J. Fox film uh, beat by beat. The first, <laughs> of course, being uh, famously Cars, which is oh. exactly is exactly the movie Doc Hollywood. Oh, wow. So, so Doc we Hollywood is a movie we about the code. He is like a hotshot doctor who is like, you know, finishing his like residency or, or phys- finishing med school on the East Coast and has like a residency waiting to go in L.A. Right. Like in Hollywood. That's why he's Doc Hollywood. Right. And he is like, you know, the, the, this looking forward to being rich and, you know, marrying like a supermodel or whatever. And he is driving across the country and he gets into a car accident in the middle of nowhere town and like a, a sort of like a small town picket fences style lawyer you know sort of like uh, gives him like a crotchety sentence that he's got to do community service in town for like a few days so he gets like stuck in the middle of nowhere and he has to like live 
the life of like a small town American doctor, basically like the, the doctor from um, Field of Dreams, you know, like, you know, who still makes house calls with a leather bag. Um, and of course, like, you know, falls in love with a local girl and is sort of seduced by the the, the lifestyle of like the, these these simple you know, people from the heartland and, and decides in the end, I think, I think, you know, it's a, a similar ending to, to cars where he does, he does go to LA and he does like have like the interview, you know, when he's on the cusp of like accepting the job of his dreams. And then he decides to sort of like turn it down and like go back to the middle of nowhere town and become like the local doctor. Um, and this is exactly the movie cars. Um, and so I guess what I'm saying is like, Either Pixar is eventually going to work its way into a time travel movie, or I haven't seen The Secret of My Success in so long, but like some kind of a movie <laughs> about like somebody sort of scamming their way to the top of the business world. Um. Anyway, it's a weird. It is a weird. Coincidence. I am really looking forward to the Pixar Back to the Future now because now it feels inevitable, right? It'll be some sort of interrogation of the notion of Back to the Future. Oh yeah, that's well. A really, okay, that's a really actually, cool. you know that this is another good hook into, into an aspect of the movie that you didn't mention, which is it is a period piece. Yes, d- delightfully, uh, it really leans in to early two thousands nostalgia. It's set in two thousand and two, and a Tamagotchi plays like a very large. You know, like Pixar loves these sort of like emotional tear jerking beats, and they, they Tamagotchi features heavily in one of them. Um, and the sort of like the the touchstone through the whole movie, the thing that the the main character and her friends are obsessed with is a fictional boy band called Four Town with the number four. Um, and, you know, one of the, the many jokes about it is that there are five of them. Uh, it's never quite explained, like, why there are five of them, but it's called Four Town, um, which I think, I, honestly, like, it's probably I'm sure this movie has been in development for like seven years. But I think that the, Tita Fey recently had a series which is like was like Girls Five Ever. Which is like the same kind of a joke <laughs> yeah. about about an early two thousands girl band and like they're sort of like reuniting twenty years later and it's the same deal where there's like the wrong number of them. But no, girls, of girls five ever because forever is not enough. Oh, is that it? I thought I thought it was literally like they just added another one and just changed the name. I mean, the- <laughs> sorry, go ahead. Forever, no, forever is too short. Girls, yeah, no, watch that. Watch that series. Um, yeah, it's. I mean that that is fun, and it. Go, I mean, it leans back. I I don't think of it. I identify it not with the early two thousands. I identify it with the late nineties, the nineties greatest period for music uh, ever in human history. Um, you know the the period during which. Uh, entirely coincidentally we were teenagers and our musical tastes were were being formed but you know part of that is the great rich legacy of the uh of the the backstreet boys and the ends sync um <laughs> and that's uh you know and that's sort of carried on by by four town who are kind of like they're kind of like o town they're kind of like you yeah. know um that that uh and and that like what one of the great things one of the great things in in this movie is that they are sort of entirely um they're kind of entirely ciphers you know and that that uh i guess is appropriate for being teen idols but like the the real action is the and the real character development the real the real richness is in the the group of of girls who are friends who you know kind of uh support and have reactions to uh the main character undergoing and sort of and uh, and turning into a panda, but sort of turning away from from Michael J. Fox. Though I, well, you know, I think we before should. Before you transition away from that, I want to say something about Four Town. Ah, yes, yeah. So Four Town, 
Love that they were in this movie. Really wanted to point out, especially in contrast to movies like Labyrinth or other movies about female coming of age like The Terminator. Uh, it was notable that the reason for town was in the movie was as the object of desire for the collective group of women. And part of the reason why they were called for town, even though there were five of them, is that the for town is the group of four women, not the boys. And the boys exist because that's what then when and that's what they come out and they say, like, do you want it? Do you want it? Do you want it? Right. It's if the MacGuffin is this inseparable idea that is part of screenwriting, then it is notable that in this movie, you know, the MacGuffin is the thing that the girls want, not the good that the girls provide to society when they become mothers or girlfriends. Right. Um, it's something that they want and it's OK for them to want it. Although you could also say that the question of why is it called Four Town when there are five of them also relates to Tyler eventually joining Four Town, which is also a take on how toxic masculinity is bad for men and men benefit when they become feminists. And that's thus the like collective object of desire for women should also be something that men are involved in, in the sense of supporting how much women like it and recognizing that it's cool and participating in it in much the same way that uh, 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 Mai's dad is super supportive of Mai's mom and uh, and is is kind of not somebody who's kind of in it for himself and his marriage is self-serving. So sorry, yeah. I just want to throw it in there because I didn't feel like we were going to come back around to Four Town, and I just wanted to, to throw that out there before we moved on. Well, oh, no, we will definitely come back around to Four, Four Town. was delightful. Yeah. But I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned Tyler because I think that's interesting. And, and you put it in my head when you mentioned Labyrinth because I, I don't know how familiar everybody is with Labyrinth. But so Labyrinth is a movie where David Bowie – is the king of the goblins yeah. and he and 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 uh wow jennifer Connolly makes a, a careless wish to that that the goblins would come and take her little brother away where there's like there's like a 15 year age gap by the way i mean this is like a real baby brother and she's like you know 15 or, or you know 13 to 15 something like that um and he's, you know, so he's this very, I guess I want to call him very sexualized, but he's so glam that it's, 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 he's been sexualized almost to the point where he's like completely like, like demisexual, asexual. He's passed beyond convention, conventional gender norms. He's gone to plaid. Yeah. Right. And it's in a way, I feel like he might be a good stand in for four town. Right. Which, <laughs> which is that like, in a way he is this like very aggressive masculine sexuality but he's also like so abstract you know he's 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 it's it's so exaggerated that it feels like he doesn't exist in the same plane as the main character but then so in order to get through the labyrinth and retrieve the baby from the goblin king uh, jennifer Connolly, i think very interestingly every single muppet that she meets in the and they're all muppets every single muppet that she meets in the maze in the labyrinth is a male character is this sort of like misshapen curmudgeonly you know weird male character that often sort of like comes in very gruff and very like you know aggressive and she needs to sort of like win it over with her sort of friendliness and empathy and and so there's this feeling that like the way that you make it through the labyrinth is you need to like make platonic male friendships right and you need to see that like men boys you know maybe maybe like pubescent boys um even though they might seem intimidating they're actually just as scared and just as lost as you are in the labyrinth is that is is yeah. that a fair take on the movie but yeah because hoggle 
Because you're talking about Hoggle, right? I feel like there are a bunch of that. Like she meets a bunch of different characters and they're all yeah. male and they're all sort of like they they come in as like antagonistic and she wins them all over. Right. But yeah. I, right. It's mainly there's one in particular. Yeah. Um, H- Hoggle shows up to guide her, even though he kind of doesn't really know what he's doing and is kind of going to betray her. And then by the end, she's very much in charge. And then there's another character who's just all hair, who's this big like he honestly right. looks like the panda from Turning Red. Um, who is sort of this other version of male sexuality that she also needs to kind of recognize is there in service of her journey, not something that she should kind of defer to or be scared of. Um, right. And I, yeah, and I yeah. feel like Tyler starts the movie being like, he's a real brat. He is like, you know, all the girls hate him. He feels like he's, he's just there to make their lives difficult and to be as unpleasant as possible. And there's this, and, and, and that's, you know, it stays that way throughout the movie until there's this moment of, you know, played for comic relief where he's at the four town concert and he gets, you know, caught like a deer in the headlights. And he just like, and, and their reaction to see him at the four town concert, instead of, you know, his eyes go wide as if he's like, I'm busted. I'm never going to live this down. They're going to tell everyone at school. And they instantly just embrace him. Right. They're like, oh, one of us, one of us. And you get the feeling that like from then on, they're they're friends. Like that's like, all it no. takes is for them to Matt, no. is that, is that how it goes down. Yeah, Matt, no real no real four town fan would ever gatekeep, you know, another four <laughs> you know, another four town fan. You know, that's just not that's just not what we do. Even when they make TikTok memes, they make retro TikTok talk memes of them in twenty twenty two and it's like, No, you weren't a real fan in two thousand two. <laughs> You know, no, that's uh, that's not what we do. You know, we we four townies, we few, we happy few, <laughs> we we band of townies. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it, what Pete says strikes me that like it is it is kind of you you articulated better than than I was able to. What I was trying to say about like the the young female characters are developed and the young male characters are kind of a cipher, but like they're there to be the object of of uh you know their crushes and their desire and their fantasy and they're all you know the kind of the whole richness of their their internal lives um but then the the other thing that and and it is kind of uh, you know made very explicit in that do you want it yeah do you want it yeah one two three four uh the that um kind of call and response thing that's that's part of their songs the songs in this by by billy eilish and phineas by the way uh the and i i thought like as i was as I was watching it, I thought, God, what if, if merchandising of records was still a thing? I mean, if it wasn't all, you know, streaming for, for fractions of a penny per stream, um, this would be one where, you know, they should just cut the entire four town LP, you know, the, mm-hmm. the whole 75 minute, like CD length, you know, including a, like a really slack middle section with like some, some cheap, <laughs> cheap synth ballads or, or whatever. And put that out, and people would be would be lining up around around the around the block at the Tower Records to to buy it. But you know the the other thing that that it models like in in a um uh, in kind of a winky way is is it models a kind of enthusiastic consent? You know that like the 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 um 
the the, yeah. the idea that that's, like that's brilliant yeah right that the the idea that uh look <laughs> we're here to pop star but if you don't want a pop star <laughs> like, <laughs> like we're not i want it that way whichever way you want it is also fine <laughs> and in fact more important <laughs> uh that you know that that's like um and that so that there is there is a thing there is a kind of like um It trivializes it to call it it play acting. It's not play acting. There is a kind of like representational space in which a a sort of idealized version of this uh, of this dynamic of desire in which a kind of non-toxic version of this is played out between the the, you know, the screaming fans and the the uh, the teen idols. But I wanted to go even farther back um I, to you know, Pete, kind of talking earlier about the panda. Unless you know, we talked about Michael J. Fox. We talked about Jennifer Connelly. Is there is there any other '80s star that we want to bring into the to the conversation? <laughs> the the panda strikes me as kind of an ambivalent symbol, right? I'm not sure what the panda exactly represents. And there's times when the panda is allegorically something else. The panda represents like rage or the panda represents like uh attraction, like the kind of beginning of sexual feelings. The panda represents like anger at at her family or kind of like the the pressure that she she feels uh under and and also the panda is a panda. Um, and that's well, the red of, panda. Yeah, yeah. The, the panda, the red panda is a, yeah, exactly. The panda is a panda. It's a, it's a, uh, it's an actual animal, right? And it's cute and fluffy, you know? And, and people, yeah, and- people outside of her react to the panda, people outside of the family, I should say, react to the panda as though it's a panda, you know? And people inside of the family react to the panda as though it's your secret shame because they know it's sort of driven by internal conflict and it's driven by unconscious emotion and it's driven by like all kinds of like difficult experiences, the difficult experiences of, of coming of age. And that's, you know, that's, that's, uh, a totally different thing than like, like the practicalities of of turning into a panda, so it's kind of a different movie. It has a different valence um, inside the house and outside of the house. Um, yeah, almost universally. And I think there's there's a moment of surprise the first time that the kids at school see her as the panda, and she's expecting to be mocked or shunned, and she is surprised that everyone loves the panda and begs her to be the panda. Um, and in fact, so that leads into the, the, the very interesting middle section of the movie where they, they, the four main ladies have decided that they need to see four town and their parents are not going to help buy them the very expensive four town tickets. And they come up with the idea of monetizing the Panda about literally charging money to take photos with the Panda to make merch of the Panda, almost like in a meta way that like they're the Disney marketing machine ramping up. And and literally to to um, you, to 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 uh, shill, you know, the, the panda out in order to be able to afford this sort of coming of age experience of going to see four town. And it is it is interesting to think about, like, at that point, wh- where is the metaphor? At you that really point? you really racked your brain for the verb to use when you settled on shill, didn't? I wasn't sure how how explicit to be. I I don't think that the metaphor is supposed to be very strictly like the panda 
is becoming a woman and like if you're exploiting the panda you're exploiting like your 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 budding sexuality i don't think that's what the movie is saying well I, I think- i'm not sure to the i'm not sure how much the panda really is being exploited right like the the uh she's sort of using she's using the power of the panda and in a way that she chooses to use that's advantage uh to her so it's a it's a sort of you know idealized sort of uh panda work <laughs> cute work it's an idealized I I just want to point out, though, the pushing back against that, that the scene, the, the, the final panda transaction is Tyler contracts the panda to appear at his birthday party and was very explicit. Like, you got to show up for an hour. You have to do this and this and this. And it's very much like here. Here is the, the deal. And it feels kind of like, you know, you know, this is this is labor. That she has to now what she actually does at the parties, like, you know, she she dances, she, you know, does tricks, she gives people rides around, and it's very innocuous until the end, till when the parents, you know, sort of like walk in and react with with shame or you know, react with horror that like, you know, she's she's pandaing around town. But it is it is interesting that like, I mean, I I, I like to think that like what's what's being said there is the idea that like becoming becoming of you know going through puberty is not all bad and it's not all shameful and it can be really it means that you get invited to parties and you get like you know you get to go out and have fun and just like you get to embrace your hormones and that they're not all just a burden Right. Sure. And, and, yeah. and dancing is awesome. I, I'm given to yeah, understand. And, and, right. I don't, and I don't dancing. like dancing myself, but you know, we've, we've covered this on the podcast before, but there is like, you know, everyone's at the party and they're playing what they're playing charades and they're, they're super bored and the panda shows up and the panda is like the life of the party. Right. So it's like the one girl who has this like very, um, exaggerated sort of like representation of like, you know, going through this, going through this change, and then, like, she's the one who, like, allows, like, everyone else, you know, sort of, like, takes her cue, right? And it's interesting because it's, like, they they could have all danced without her. But there's something about, like, the presence of the panda allows everyone else to have fun, too. Yeah. I she's think, a catalyst yeah. for everyone for else me, growing up a little bit. Yeah. For me, the symbolism of the panda hooks into Jungian archetypes and particularly the archetype of the she-wolf. Um, if you're, and again, maybe I don't want to say it like it's an official terminology, uh, and I might probably a little bit vaguely more familiar with, uh, Clarissa Pincola Estes' women who run with the wolves than the average person might be. But it also is, uh, is, is evident in things such as, you know, the, the story of the birth of Romulus and Remus and, and their raising by the she-wolf and also the Shakira song about there being a she-wolf in the closets and sort of, uh, the sort of use of wolf terminology and Spanish language in particular. But, Looking at so okay, so looking at women who run with the wolves, which is a sort of feminist spin on the mythopoetic men's movement, right? So it's like this is sort of Jungian storytelling as a sort of quasi therapy to try to get women to get in touch with the parts of themselves that feel suppressed by society around them. And it's a story of a woman who finds bones in the desert and and when she assembles the skeleton of a wolf. Uh, uses a song that comes from her heart and a special ritual to bring the wolf into the world. Um, and uh, and I thought that if, 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 in fact, this story of the singing from the heart uh, by the woman 
being a sort of Jungian archetype for a kind of counter counter, you know, Western Christian notion of a woman. Right. Uh, if that's something that's being referenced, it's interesting that the song is sort of being a kind of twisted when it's assumed that it's going to mean that the woman doesn't get to be a panda. Right. Um, but another way of looking at it is that the she-wolf is the ultimate source of the sort of martial vigor of society uh, in, you know, Roman myth. Uh, that it, it, in fact, despite it being the most patriarchal of patriarchal societies, the Ur patriarch is a matriarch, right? The it's the it's the wolf who, through her strength, which is not in conflict with her capacity to care for others, uh, is the one who kind of brings society into being in a resilient way that is able to grow and move forward and protect itself. Right. And so, um, although with Shakira, it's more like, you know, the gyrating thing is all part of it too. So I think, I mean, if you look in the movie, they say that the origin of the panda, the red panda is as a prayer to the gods to protect this, the community from external threats then the idea being that in a sort of uh, during a time of war when the men yeah. were off, when the men were not available to to defend the village because they were, you know, sallying forth doing do I don't know, doing other things. Right. So it's a Rosie the Riveter moment. They were being they were being trained by by Donny Osmond or or yeah. you know what have you. <laughs> yeah, but the idea being that like the women don't have to in their origin story steer clear of the masculine space. Through the, This is a sort of non-binary women's movie in the sense that the things that the women are good at and have naturally are not being uh, are not like exclusively non-male, like hairiness, aggroness, right? Like rage, right? These are these are not uh, these are being characterized as the characteristics of girls becoming women, uh, but but are very notably not you know, the characters of women as distinct from men. Being a woman in this movie is not the same as not being a man. Um, and I think that goes back to these Jungian archetypes, and uh, which has a sort of deeper cultural significance and tradition that is being, that, that is suppressed by, uh, at least in, in the sort of narrative, super narrative, by westernization of mythology and the sort of like modern uh, ways that we've kind of cleaned up these sort of old dirty stories um, but again, I don't know. I also don't know anything about the cosmo, the like uh, mythological significance of red pandas. I know nothing about any sort of, uh, you know, Chinese myths about any of this stuff or Canadian ones for that matter. Um, but yeah, uh, that, that I felt like the wolf, you're right in that. I don't think the wolf is strictly a metaphor for menstruation. Um, but if you look through the movie in terms of like all the different things that, that she's going through as she becomes a woman and how they're sort of, sort of related to each other and sort of not like the panda does sort of scream puberty, puberty is happening in a physical way, but it seems to also have social roles. So, um, yeah, yeah. you know, you know, what's interesting about looking at the, the panda from the point of view of like, you know, traditional culture, you know, older generations and then like this new westernized generation is that it, it works differently than you'd expect it to. That that that's it, it, it normally would be just like sort of like the panda. It, it would be the older generation sort of being like the panda is something that's always been a part of our family. Embracing the panda as part of your destiny. And she would be like, I don't want to be a panda. I just want to be a Canadian. Right, right, right. right. That she would be like, I don't want this. This thing is not a blessing to me. You know, we're not in China anymore. This thing is a burden. But instead, it's the exact opposite, right? It's the it's the very old school people who are like, you know, reject Western culture 
who sort of are like, yes, like this, the panda is our legacy, but we also hate it. We also hate it. And since time immemorial, we have suppressed it. Right. And Despite the museum that we have that we run. Yeah. About, it's right. It, yeah. Right. So it's like we we understand and we deeply appreciate the panda and we revere the ancestors, but we also we we view it as a curse. And and she's the one who has to come at it from a new perspective and be like, actually, in, in a way, she is more and she, there's that moment of connection where she gets to actually see the ancestor in this sort of spiritual realm at the end during the ceremony that she, you know, has makes makes eye contact with the ancestor who first got the the panda blessing. And there's almost a feeling that, like, even though she is the westernized one, that she is more in touch with the, her sort of ancestral spirits than her parents and her grandparents, who have kind of become detached from that. Yeah, it's kind of a chosen. It's a it's a chosen one narrative a little bit in in that one respect, right? But that like, I, but the 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 letting go of the the kind of or the suppressing i should say of the panda isn't really connected with westernization per se um it's it's connected with being under your mother's thumb you know it's it's connected with kind of kind of what's being being sort of subjugated being made kind of subservient and like um subordinating your uh your own real feelings your wishes for yourself you know uh to to uh, someone who has who has different interests uh from you kind of represented by represented in this case by your mother um and this is why you know and and, and like all the more so with um uh you know with the mother Right. Who's who is the giantest of the pandas? Who's the you know, who has the biggest red panda, like like equally like easily five or six hundred times the size of the other red pandas. Right. It's you got to think that she was even more. She would have been even more independent. She would have been really more, uh, you know, I don't know, had a, had a rougher time with the panda. And like, indeed, she sort of it, I guess the conflict with her mother was about um marrying her husband uh the husband's a great character the father character is a, is a great character i love you know he seems like a really good cook um that uh she that and and that like she actually did go on and marry him so even though she like suppressed the panda in the literal sense she sort of found a a way of um, what would Jung say? Individuating, you know, in, in kind of like striking out and with an individual identity that is not just sort of part of group membership. Um, yeah, that's not just part of like group membership in a family, but is actually a little, a little more about like, um, uh, what, what she wants for her, what she wants for her, yeah. her own life. Yeah, I totally, I thought that one of the fun twists of this movie was the idea that, of the many ways that girls become women, one of the ways that often shows up in movies. I mean, again, the many ways that movies and, and other sorts of stories show that girls become women, not like the many ways girls become women that I've noticed. Uh, I mean, that's a little bit rude. <laughs> that's the don't you don't go around just like looking at people become adults. 
Right. That's that's not your. I mean, not except your, not except your we do. That's a big. Yeah. That's a big uh, part of. That's a big part of of creeper culture, really. <laughs> over the whole, you know. Oh, you're growing up nicely. Like I'm sure oh, you can think so of like creepy. half half a dozen times when you've seen that on on television or something. And you know, thankfully, yeah. it's it's you know clearly the character who is you know captured by the police at the end of the at the the end of the episode of Law and Order. But the uh, you know, I'm sorry, Pete. I, I hijacked. Your oh no, point. no, no. You're, you're totally right. You're totally right. And I think the movie flirts with this in the sense that that's what the mother's afraid of um, at the beginning with the with the 17 year old at the at the market. But uh, but that uh, that the aspect of becoming a woman that involves becoming a a mother um, is is the mom who has not yet become a woman because in a full sense, because she has not come to terms with the fact that her children, though they come from her body, are not of her body. Mm. And I felt like this was interesting. This this dovetailed somewhat with the the husband, who is a sort of sensualist uh-huh. with regards to the way his food cooking was prepared, right? And you got the sense that there was this sort of relationship with the body and the pleasures of the body that this family was involved in and that the mother in particular was like really wrestling with and kind of drawn to, but kind of uh, had, had developed these blocks with. But that, you know, the mom at the beginning of the movie was portrayed in a very, I thought, a pretty sympathetic way as she made horrible, horrible mistakes. Um, And maybe that's just because I'm a parent and I anticipate, you know, in the near not too distant future, uh, uh, once my kid is able to remember it, to shame my child with horrible, horrible mistakes they will remember for their entire life um, and 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 whatnot. But uh, but yeah, just the idea of like I sympathize because the things that the mom was doing wrong, she was doing wrong because she was new to it and she had no idea how to do this. And that said to me that she was also in a process of transition and, and that she was also changing and that this was, uh, you know, this was this was something that was happening for her as well as it was happening for her daughter. And it, and it kind of needed to happen to both of them in order for it to happen to either of them. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Right. It's interesting. You call, you say that she's sort of, um, would you say Pete that, that she's not a girl, <laughs> but, but not yet, uh, fully adult. I mean, I don't know. According to the Toronto transit authority, she's a full adult, which was a great Downton Abbey moment. By the way, It's like, well, how can you tell whether you're a woman or not? How much do you pay to ride the bus? Right? Like, <laughs> well, welcome to bureaucratic, you know, capitalist society. So um, I wanted to t- because I think that, you know, there's a very touching scene at the end of the movie where the mother and daughter meet sort of in that in, in the midst of that ceremony in the sort of spiritual realm. And the mother actually appears as a girl at first. You know, they appear like the same age, which, you know, dovetails beautifully with what Pete was saying, which is that like in a way they're they're both the mom never really fully dealt with this. And this is they're going through this together. But it's I what I thought one of the surprising things about this movie is that um, the not just the mom, but all the other female relatives who all sort of temporarily regain their pandanus in order to save the Toronto Superdome, uh, they all almost without hesitation, make the choice to resuppress the panda, right? That like, despite what may has shown them, they choose the same path again. And it's interesting because this is a very sort of a typical type of, of children's movie where it's sort of like, 
you know, our society has rules. Like we've always done things this way. And then like, you know, I mean, I can think of a, a dozen examples of this, but like a good one is like the little mermaid, right? Where the mermaids hate the humans and they stay away. We, we hate humans. And she's like, what if we don't hate the humans? And then at the end of the movie, what happens is that like through her example, she shows all the mermaids that humans are okay. And at the end, all the humans and all the mermaids are friends. Um, Monsters Inc. in the in the Pixar canon is another one where like the monsters scare humans. This is what we've always done. And we we accept without question the idea that humans are extremely dangerous and toxic and to be feared. Um, and that because of Mike and Sully at the end of the movie that like now monsters aren't afraid of humans anymore and they realize that making humans laugh is better than scaring humans. Um, or to go like outside the Disney, the Disney canon. If you think about like Happy Feet, right? They're like, there's a bunch of penguins, and we sing, and this is what all penguins do. What all penguins have always done is we sing. And here's one penguin who dances, and at the end of the movie, all the penguins dance, right? And he shows them that there's a better way to live. I mean, How to Train Your Dragons, exactly this is that like maybe the dragons, instead of fighting them, we could team up with them, right? And that it always ends with like, you're right, your way, you've shown us. The, that that are are sort of like preconceptions or sort of fears or or your superstitions, whatever they are, they're wrong. You've shown us that like there's a better way to 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 live, right? And Turning Red doesn't exactly do this because even though at the you know at the in the middle of the movie, the older Chinese women are horrified at the idea that somebody might choose to keep the panda, right? To live as a panda, that the panda is a curse and you only have one chance to get rid of it forever. And if you miss that chance, it's like a fate worse than death. Right? So she does successfully show them that like, that's not the case. And then at the end of the movie, she is like living with, you know, a sort of panda alter ego. And, you know, her mom seems fine with this and sort of learned to live with it. But I think very tellingly, nobody else makes the same choice that like they don't embrace their inner pandas. They continue to live with their pandas locked away in a piece of jewelry. And so it feels like there's it's a generational thing or it's a it's a culture shift that like even though they, they accept that there are other ways to live, they don't accept that it's better. Yeah, well, they, they all, the panda. yeah, they also, I mean, they also are old. Right? <laughs> like, they, they're, they're, they're too old to like start falling. Cause, Cause I was totally thinking halfway through the movie, I expected a scene where like the, the, the aunts, the sort of like, you know, the fun comic relief, like, you know, Chinese women of a certain age were going to like, you know, because they, they, they have to become pandas in the middle of the movie to save the day. And I, I was kind of expecting a sort of a throwaway at the end where they're all, they're all like playing mahjong as pandas or something. You know, they, they get to be pandas when they want to be pandas and they they've certain they've embraced that part of themselves but that's not the way it goes and i think it's very interesting that as soon as the crisis is over they immediately you know part with their panda self and 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 don't look back yeah um but the i mean i don't know the panda i don't like i'm not sure the exact in universe like you know panda mythology because like i don't know they broke the amulets once you could you could break the amulet again you know but i don't know something something that like strikes me you know is, is that a lot of the a lot of the um stories that you're talking about have have a sort of uh, a liberal view of have a view about the perfectibility of people like ah you've shown us you've shown us the way and now like now you know humankind is is uh, irrevocably changed now we're better you know now we're better than than uh than we used to be and and this is not 
like you know this is not like that you know this is not um it's a, you know, sometimes animals are just out there in the, in the world or in your house as it happens like the uh no this is this is not a, a movie without that worldview you know like puberty is not better like puberty is not uh is not easier you're not going to like fight with your family less you know we can't cure um, these common human, uh, these common human things. Like we can, you know, you can't like learn to, you can't learn to live with the dragon and all of a sudden eighth grade is not terrible anymore. No, eighth grade is still terrible. You know, I, I think we can do certain things. I think we can sort of gain self knowledge, right? Is what the, is what the, the movie talks about. And I think, I think the other thing is that, uh, we can, we can listen because like as Pete was like, you know, uh, talking about the litany of more Notifications that the the well-meaning or uh, uh, maybe not well-meaning, maybe like her uh, herself, very in over her head, mother visits um, upon her her poor daughter, like going, you know, uh, trying to trying to deliver pads to school and like shouting out, you know, her daughter's business, <laughs> literally shouting out her daughter's business in the streets, right? Like that that um, the, the one thing she doesn't do is like listen to her, her daughter you know there's like a kind of there's a pre she has kind of like a, a a sort of narrative based on her own anxiety she has a narrative based on her own sort of worst fears and her own um uh, you know i don't know her own kind of suppositions about the world like the the 17 year old um convenience store clerk who her daughter hasn't even talked to you know <laughs> like has like she's peered at him through through the window um but but you know she assumes that he ha- she has to go and like uh mama bear up or or uh or mama panda up so i mean that that is the thing but that, that is like an area for improvement <laughs> but that she you you can't sort of you can't sort of solve it and i i don't know i there's something uh there's something in that 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 connects it i mean pete was talking about the romans before and like you know it's like something that that connects it with a a long archetypal tradition of things that that like that that are the uh you know that are the conservative stories the the small c conservative stories the the stories that tell us that we're not going to get better you know the stories that tell us that like we are um that there are sort of patterns in our lives and you're, you're, you're not going to outthink them and you're not going to sort of perfect human nature, uh, you know, to the point where they're not, uh, to the point where they're not necessary anymore. I had a good, um, I had a good, uh, English teacher in, in the ninth grade and, you know, he was kind of canny enough to set in our curriculum a lot of stuff that commented on our, commented on our situation, uh, obliquely, um, as, you know, as teenagers. That was like, uh, that was kind of appropriate to, not appropriate. I, I, I dislike the way that word is used in the discourse of raising children. Um, that was, uh, on point, you know, to a lot of the kind of developmental tasks that we were, uh, that we were going, but that, that sort of told it slant um in a way that that made it possible to be like oh yeah we're analyzing all of this we're analyzing all of this stuff in a in a super intellectual way oh god it it me <laughs> you know like dorothy in the wizard of oz it me uh you know i don't know odysseus it me and the um 
you know, or uh, I don't know, a separate piece or something. I don't know. It me. Um, that like, uh, and, and we sort of talked about these and talked about in a lot of the stories, the trope of loss of innocence, the sort of loss of childhood and the sort of the knowledge that, that, you know, the knowledge that comes with, uh, with eating the apple, you know, the knowledge that kind of comes with passing through the threshold into, uh, into adulthood where you are kind of inaugurated in whatever way into a kind of a wider and scarier world of, uh, a wider and scarier world of emotions and the kind of the, the or narrative of that, that year of English in ninth grade turned into like, you, you can't get innocence back, but what you get is integrity. You know, you can't get, um, you, you like, you can't get, uh, you, you can't get the non panda self back, you know, but, but what you get is a choice, you know, to live in, you know, in the way that you want, uh, that you, you, you to live in, in a way you want to live. Um, uh, I'll, I'll just say the last thing about that teacher was that, you know, when, when, uh, Dorothy gets in, in the, the novel, when Dorothy gets to Oz or something, she comes to the end of her, her search. Uh, Glinda is sitting on a ruby throne. Uh, and, um, the, uh, and he, he, uh, Scott Davison, the name of this teacher invited us to, uh, to think about what the color red might symbolize, uh, in this context, in something that you, you sit on. And we all, uh, we all turned bright red ourselves and, and, uh, we're, we're too embarrassed to talk. But, but anyway, I don't know, Matt, that was, that was a big brain dump, but it was like sort of toward, towards the point of, of like, what do you think, um, what do you think of uh, of them renouncing the renouncing the panda at the end? Well, I you know I think that you kind of can't have it all, and I'm to me it's a stronger movie um, because it it lives with that it you know uh, lives within the the boundaries of that truth rather than you know trying to uh, trying to square the circle. I really like in terms of meanings of red. I, I kept thinking of red envelopes. Oh yeah. Maybe that's too much of a stretch. A red envelope being a Yonic symbol. Um, but the red envelope also being in, you know, Chinese culture, uh, the way in which you would give somebody uh, money for a holiday or a wedding, right? It's supposed to be a gift that brings good fortune. And the idea that if you're turning red, uh, the father refers to it as a lucky color, right? Yeah. Um, and, and so a red gift is a different way of looking at, uh, at the period, than the one that might shame you for it or make you think that you're dirty or smelly. It's in fact sort of something that uh, speaks to a kind of future, uh, future good luck or happiness potentially, both because you're growing into the person that you will be, uh, and also because of the you know the the sort of the the long tradition of of uh, women that you become part of and all of the things that that entails. Yeah, the one um, the wonderful father character whose message seems to be, what if we don't have to impose our will on everything? <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's like, what, what if we just are kind of cool with stuff? And, what if know? I, as the man in this movie, supported the women protagonist <laughs> yeah. rather than like tried to undermine her and yelled at her and criticized her all the time? I mean, it is it is a little bit of a gender flip, right? That like you know, so he's the father, but like he's the one who does the cooking in the family and like he's the he's the quieter one but he's also the one who comes through with um great empathy and and like you know the sort of broad-minded perspective and like trying to, to be be kind to everyone instead of digging in his heels 
Um, and I am glad that like he's played for comic relief, you know, a lot in the movie as a sort of henpecked husband character in, in a family of like extremely strong women. Um, but I think towards the end of the movie when like, you know, he he's the one who sort of gives the daughter permission to live her own life. Yeah. Um, well, and lets her know that she's what is that? I mean, what does that entail? She lets her know that she'll be accepted, you know, that she's still a yeah. part of the family, that she's still loved and and, you know, she's still uh, his daughter and and uh, all of that. Like he you know, I talked about sort of listening before, like he you know, he's the the character who listens and is, you know, is yeah, is is an interesting and and also, I mean, I'm sorry, the the film it's uh um, the way, the way they shoot that, uh, that first scene of him cooking is, is borderline pornographic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, is, it is just, you yeah. know, lettuce, moisture, like drops of dew don't need to just like burst off the, the bok choy being cut in quite that particular way. Um, the, this movie has been kind of, uh, uh, has, has stirred up controversy, of course. I mean, I think like it has periods in it and like, uh, you know, oh no, we can't have that, uh, in our, you know, <laughs> <laughs> we can't, we can't have that in our Christian society. Um, that like, uh, you know, it's, it's, um, you know. I, see, I, I think this is very interesting because I, I, I think it's a direct consequence to debuting on a streaming service huh. because Here's the deal. Like if it came out in theaters, I think parents would make would pay a little more attention to what they were signing up for before you lug your like, let's say, four year old uh-huh. to this movie. But because it's on Disney Plus, you're like, oh, from the studio who just streamed us in Canto like a few months ago, here's the new animated movie and has it also has fun music. Um, and let's put it on. And I do think a lot of people were a little bit taken aback because this movie clearly is meant to skew older not to say that like I don't think younger kids might enjoy it because it is it is colorful and it it can be silly and it's like there's a lot of action on screen but they might not understand everything that's going on you know both both the sort of like you know the, you know uh, puberty you know the 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 nitty gritty there but also like I I talked a lot more you know I, I watched it with my seven year old and he. You know, the the whole idea that the panda was meant to be a metaphor uh, was completely lost on him, right? To him, it was just a panda. But he was very curious about the Tamagotchi and how Tamagotchis <laughs> work and, like, you know, what happens if you let your Tamagotchi die? Are so you he allowed would, to restart it? So you're saying yeah. he was asking a lot of questions about the egg. Yeah, exactly. How do you talk to your son about Tamagotchi death? That's a really tough question. <laughs> Honestly, I didn't remember enough of that. I think I, I think I went on, and I wonder how many people are are going on Amazon right now, and like the Tamagotchi people are all of a sudden like the factories are ramping up to produce mass numbers of Tamagotchi. Kind of the way that like I'm, I'm sure that the what the the estate of um was it what, what who who did um Hello Dolly is that Kander and Ab. <laughs> Is that like, you know, after Wally came out, suddenly like it only takes a moment, just skyrockets in popularity. <laughs> uh, just like all of a sudden, like nobody saw that coming. And like th- this, what what that did for Hello Dolly, what Wally did for Hello Dolly, this is doing for Tamagotchis. Um, but it is, I think, you know, an interesting problem, which is that like, I think your, your streaming service, maybe Disney Plus more than any other streaming service, it, you know, you kind of get you know, you, you get a beat on it that like this streaming service is good for my kid 
of a certain age to watch. And like, you know, there it, it's, it's had a lot of hits that are successful with him. And so you just assume when Disney releases his next animated movie that like, it's also going to be appropriate for a five-year-old. And you might be like a little confused or taken aback that, that I, I mean, I, I could tell you anecdotally, you know, my sister has kids of a number of different ages and she has like a, I think he's four now, but barely four. And he was terrified by the Kaiju pandem at the end right? Uh, and i'm sure like the metaphors meant nothing to him but the scene of the giant panda wrecking devastation on downtown toronto was like some of the more like intense monstrous imagery that he's ever been exposed to as a four-year-old and she was not prepared for that even though this movie is like you know i don't know if we need another gradation in this day and age between like you know pg and pg 13 and kanto was pg this is also pg and yet this feels like a notch or two above in Kanto in terms of like, you know, and Kanto is about generational trauma and colonialism. Like you, you only yeah. get to like, and, and Kanto is like a fun singing, dancing rob rob. If you like willfully ignore 90% of the message of the movie. Well, though. but, but at the same time, right? Like how much is the message? What is that issue when you're talking? I, this is, I feel like it's interesting because you brought up an interesting point, uh, Matt, rather, and Matt Balinke also has a very interesting point. But it's like, I don't think a lot of people even, yeah, I feel like you have to have a very young kid to like be like hyper focused on a day to day basis on the like cognitive differences between what your very young kid does mm. and thinks and like what marginally older kids do and think. Um, Especially in this day and age where as soon as you're 14, you know, you're watching full on hardcore uh, sex acts and also like nihilistic mass violence just in your casual entertainments. Um, it's like we sort of feel like all the ratings have gone away, but there's still a big difference between being a toddler and being a kid. Um, I mean, you're right. On one hand, I think you're right in that like, the themes are not less complex. And of course, it's famous that I still have not yet seen a Ganto, but <coughs> excuse me, but my my uh, nieces and nephews seem to have no trouble engaging with Encanto on their terms. Um, I suppose one movie to go back and watch from this perspective would be Disney's Haunted Mansion, which I also heard had big differences <laughs> between how adults understood it and how children understood it. And then, and it's a question of like, for the child, is it working as directed? Um, but yeah, but I guess the aesthetic of Turning Red speaks to it being like a G-rated movie for little kids. Uh, right. Like, cause it's, everything is so kawaii and like, uh, you know, even the, the big eyes and everything's so round. It's like big hero six. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, not that that's a problem per se, but it's interesting that, that it's interesting that that's scary. I mean, again, doesn't Kanto have like scary things that make the kids freak out? Um, I mean, frozen is pretty heavy duty too. Um, although wait, did I tell you about when my son first encountered anything from frozen? It's really funny. Oh, man, it's so funny. It's a so, good story. Uh, I mean, it's not a long story. But uh, I decided in my sort of uh, playing songs for him, we, we watch a lot of music videos and, and sort of short musical uh, stuff on YouTube. And I had, it, we had, I had just introduced him to Moana. My wife and I had just introduced him to some Moana songs, which are just great for little kiddos. And it recommended started recommending Frozen. And so I played the video for Would You Like to Build a Snowman for him, which he was into, right? Um, and he's, at this point, he's like maybe one and a half. And, uh, and he likes the song, but he hates the like bridge. And he hates the last verse because it's too boring. And he wants me to skip it. He'll see like again, again, go back, go back. 
But the part in that, so, you know, the way that song works is that, you know, Anna goes up to sing to Elsa when she's a little kiddo and is like, would you like to build a snowman? And she can't, right? She goes back when she's a little older. Would you like to build a snowman? Oh, she can't, right? She gets a little older and, and Elsa is going through this personal horror of this horrible thing that's happening to her body where she's emitting ice. And Anna is like totally shut out and doesn't understand what's going on. And there's a part in the middle of the song, in the middle of the song, where the parents get on a boat and die, right? Like, and they get on this boat and, and there's a storm and the boat goes over a wave and just like disappears from view. And it's understood that the parents are dead. Well, the well it's understood first, by us. Yes. <laughs> the first time that happened, um, you know, my little kiddo who quite, quite loves pirate ships saw the boat like crest the wave and disappear behind the wave and went, wee! <laughs> like, as the parents died. <laughs> Which you could read as a sort of, uh, you know, man, he really wants to, like, inherit whatever paltry property I might have and take his place on the throne of this house. Like, yay! But yeah, he, like, he went beyond understanding what was happening in, in, in this segment to, like, actively experiencing its exact opposite. It's a strong misreading. Yes, exactly. Wee! <laughs> oh look it's a panda yay that kind of thing um so but, I mean, yeah but matt what rather did you have a uh, did you want to talk about the actual controversy well no i mean i guess there, there is like i actually hadn't as as a non-parent of a kid i hadn't even thought about the kind of the intensity of like the last you know of some of the last action se- sequences um because man i was thinking about the intensity of the feeling you know about the the intensity of the of the themes but i i think that the the um the actual quote unquote controversy is much stupider uh yes. than than what uh what Matt is talking about what Belinky is talking about right like that like you know uh ha- having periods in movies like what what whatever will they think of next is you know <laughs> <laughs> one of these one of these things and then like you know that like it celebrates disobedience or like uh self self acceptance um you know the, the unhealthy self acceptance and like not honoring your your father and especially your your mother uh kids being the the, the uh, the I am here's an unattributed quote from a random article I googled. It feels like the film champions kids being rude to their parents and other authority figures um you know uh that that like um yeah, that, that like, uh, it's not, uh, that, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't have self acceptance for your unacceptable feelings. Um, I think this is, this is probably, I don't know. It's, it's. Did they only watch the first 10 minutes of the movie? Yeah. I Cause that's know. how the movie starts, right? Where she's like, I'm 13 and I don't have to do anything my parents say. And then are they just like, that's it, not watching this anymore? Right? Like, I don't care what this is about. This kid's riding the bus. This kid doesn't like their parents. Uh, get me out of here. Right. Um, but yeah, it's uh it's it's because it doesn't glorify not listening to your parents. Yeah. Though but- it does glorify ma- differentiating your parents from your peers and thinking of them as different, having different relationships with them, which sure. is actually quite healthy, right? Yeah. Uh, absolutely. I, I mean, but, you know- Blinky, what do you think about that? You know, a movie that's reminding me a lot of uh, another thing I've seen on uh, Disney Plus recently, which is uh, Shang-Chi. Oh, yeah. A a movie about somebody who comes from a very, I was going to say very traditional, but very 
traditional yet fictionalized yes. Chinese background. <laughs> I come from Magic you know, China. It, yes, yes exactly. an ultra traditional society that that includes magic, right? It lives in a parallel dimension, um, <laughs> but like you know, wears traditional garb and has been living the same way for thousands of years, and is like you know, and and but but grew up in a westernized context. And that, like, you know, his his ultimate, his sort of final form in that movie is sort of wearing the traditional battle outfit of his people, but also his pair of Air, Air Jordans. Right. 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 I think that's critical is that the sort of like his American side, you know, and his American best friend and his Chinese heritage, they have to be combined for him to finally be what he's supposed to be. And I think we see that at the end of this movie where May is she she continues to work in the temple alongside her mom, but as a as a openly a, I'm a panda and I'm proud. And, but but also hanging out with her friends and engaging in Western culture. And you know, she she's like managed to have it bold ways. She's not completely rejecting her parents. She's honoring her parents, but on her own terms and her parents respect the fact that she has a life outside the temple. And I think that, I think that's, that's where, you know, and it, I think, doesn't it also don't both movies end with a karaoke scene, <laughs> right? Isn't, isn't that like a crucial point in both movies? Is that like the main character really loves karaoke with with his friends, his or her friends? Oh man, I remember that from Shang-Chi. Yeah. So yeah, I think. Is it, isn't that the thing? Is that like, like at yeah. the beginning of the movie, she was supposed to go karaoke, but her parents wouldn't let her go karaoke because she had temple duties. Right, 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 right. And yeah. I think at the end of the movie, maybe it's like I can finally, I can finally go karaokeing, singing with her own, singing a song, singing somebody else's song, but with her own voice. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's yeah. that kind of a, it's that kind of a thing where you have to integrate the traditional and the sort of modern parts of your personality that you have to, you know, own own the panda, but like in your own way, monetize the the panda in your own way. Uh, instead of just like, you know, the way that your grandmother wants you to 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 receive it. Um, and yeah, and that, that she she gets she gets acceptance, even though that like the the rest of her family doesn't sort of share her life choices that her mom very notably chooses not to become a monster that will destroy downtown Toronto every time she gets upset. Well, her mom right. needs therapy. Like as well, yeah, her, mom, you know, her mom definitely needs before she's ready to before she's ready to accept the 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 panda like uh you know may have that the um the moderating influence of her father right on and not just the uh not just sheer sheer panda energy bpe big panda energy on the you know on the on the way down mm. um i think we probably should leave it there so thanks very much everyone for listening thanks for uh talking about talking about some pandas Ooh. uh <laughs> blinks and pete um hey we'll be back next week with more overthinking a podcast till then you can visit us on the web at overthinking it.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably, it probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. deserve.